Welcome, all of you, detectives, true and more than just a bit. All right, all right, all right. You're listening to the Late Night Fright right here on WKMF Cozy Corner Public Radio. I am Dan, and with me, as always, is my very lone star co-host, Faith. Say hi, Faith. Hi, Faith. Faith, you know why I called you my very lone star co-host, don't you? All those beer cans that he's got (laughs) sitting there in front of him. Yep. Faith, what are we doing today? (laughs) We are doing Mac Attack Monday. Mac Attack Monday. We are continuing our look back at the first season of HBO's award-winning series, True Detective, from creator Nick Pizzolatto. This week, we are spotlighting episode three, The Locked Room, which premiered on January 26th, 2014. Here's a quick synopsis of the episode, courtesy of our good friends at Wikipedia. Faith, Wikipedia is not lazy, is it? What is it? It's efficient. It is efficient. 1995, Hart and Cole, after speaking with Pastor Joel Therio, played by Shea Wiggum, learned that Lang was sometimes seen at church with a tall man with distinctive facial scarring. Their investigation continues in the face of pressure to turn the case over to Tuttle's new task force. Hart enters a jealous rage when he discovers his mistress Lisa, played by Alexandra D'Addario, with another man. While researching old investigations, Cole identifies symbols similar to the Lang case in the death of Rianne Olivier, which was classified as accidental. Hart and Cole visit Light of the Way Academy, a religious school run by Tuttle that Olivier attended, but find it abandoned save for a groundskeeper on a riding lawnmower whom Cole questions. They discover that Olivier's boyfriend, Reggie Ledoux, played by Charles Halford, is an ex-con who is a cellmate of Dora Lang's ex-husband, Charlie, and has since skipped parole. The detectives put an APB out on Reggie Ledoux. And in the 2012 time frame, the interviews continue revealing Hart's questionable moral views and Cole's nihilistic views of humanity. I think that about really wraps it up very nicely and efficiently. Thank you to the good people <laughs> at Wikipedia. So, Faith, we've talked quite a bit about Cole and Hart, but I want to shift the focus to some of the other characters. And I want to start with Joel Therio, the pastor portrayed by Shea Wiggum. And he really dominates the first scenes of this episode. What did you think of him the first time you saw him here in episode three? I think he gave a great performance, you know, just start just right off the bat. He is. It's a really good performance. And I think he has two scenes in the series, like this kind of extended Mm -hmm. first scene where we meet him here. And then he comes back in episode five or six. So... But he makes quite an impression. That's a great performance, oh, yeah. isn't it? Absolutely. Yeah, he definitely uh, he has this vibe to him that I don't know. It's hard to explain, but I'm gonna I'm gonna throw this out here. Um, I hope it wasn't a personal bias on my part. Uh, it could very well have been. 
could very well have been the way that Mr. Wiggum was playing this guy. Uh, I see a, an evangelist like that. And sometimes I think used car salesman, mm-hmm. um, that he's selling something that he is selling something. That's mm-hmm. the thing. I, I drew assumptions on who this guy was the first time that I saw him in this episode, a character that we, we talk about a lot here, Russ Cole. I think he draws mm-hmm. some assumptions and comes to conclusions about this guy. And it turns out that he's not those things. Right. And we're going to get into who exactly he is in a second. And we have a clip here. This opens up the episode. And this is uh, delivered by Therio. And this ties into the theme of identity that we've been talking about and also into two other things that we're going to get into. So here's this clip. You were as blind to him as your footprints in the ashes, but he saw you. He saw you in those dark corners. He heard you. Oh, my brothers, he heard those thoughts. You are a stranger to yourself, and yet he knows you. And when your hard heart made you like unto the stone and broke you from his body, which is the stars and the wind between the stars, he knew you. He knew you yet and forever. This world is a veil. And the face you wear is not your own. So there we go. Uh, great delivery by uh, Shea Wiggum as Joel Therio. Faith, what did you think of that clip? Because that opens up this episode, right. and I'm of the opinion that this really is a distillation of the, the entire series. <laughs> yeah, but I mean, I mean, yeah, exactly. I mean, he kind of says it all. I really. He really does. He says a lot more than he even realizes. He says, "So, Faith, what is the?" first line in that rant there that he has and this is uh i think the first line in the show so what is that first line what was it you're as blind to him is that what it was yes the yes you are blind to him close enough who does russ cole (laughs) meet at the end of this episode uh he meets childress he meets childress And do you remember the scene and what is behind Childress in that scene? Up in the sky, shining bright, right in Russ Cole's eyes, the sun. And he's literally blind to him. So uh, we're going to get more to Errol Childress and his depravity as we move forward. But I want to take a closer look at the theme of decay. And we've talked about that in the past two episodes. Because it runs through this entire episode, and I actually want to go forward in the timeline of the series to when we next see Joel Therio, which is in episode six, Haunted Houses. Now, here's a clip of the conversation between Cole and Therio. You always hit the bottle this early in the day, Reverend. Who are you? You don't remember me? Hmm? I came to see you at your revival tent, January of 95. Looks like you gave that up. Mid-80s, you were still with the Tuttle Ministry then. What do you know about a Tuttle organization that was set up to finance rural schools? It was called Will Springs. 
It was an evangelical initiative to provide religious education as an alternative to public schooling in rural communities. And part of the reason there were so many dropouts in the state. A lot of kids had to bus an hour or more. You know about that school on Pelican Island? I don't know it specific. But there was one in 1988. Accusations of children being interfered with. I never found anything on that. It was, it was kept internal, I think. Maybe it was nothing, maybe people was paid. It's got nothing to do with me, mind you. I was going to school in Baton Rouge, gossip around the seminary, but we didn't give credence to rumors. Well, why'd you leave? Bureaucracy. Politics. One night, cleaning the senior minister's library, I knocked over a very old volume, The Letters of Telios de Lorca, 12th century Franciscan mystic, very obscure. When I picked up the book, this little folder falls out. Little folder of pictures. Pictures of children. Naked. Looked like they were sleeping. What'd you do? I took it over to the morals officer, Deacon Farrar. He was close with Tuttle, vice president of college. You didn't do nothing? He seemed you know, angry that I brought it to him. He even intimated that maybe I was confessing to something. I had to prove to him that I wasn't. He promised to look into it. I'd left by the time Wellspring shut down. When'd you quit the revival? Our last two tents vandalized. I lost heart. A little too much of this. All my life, I want to be nearer to God. And the only nearness? Silence. All right, so there you have it, the second clip. Uh, do you see Therio as a mirror for Russ Cole? Yes. I do, too. Because uh, when it hits him that the Dora Lang murder is tied into the Tuttle family, he starts smoking. Mm-hmm. And you see that in this episode here that we're talking about, episode three. I mean, it and it's it, they show you him smoking. That's the thing. I mean, he lights up the cigarette. You see right. him sitting there smoking a cigarette. When we get to that episode six, Haunted Houses, he's drinking, and he's a lot like the older Russ Cole. Exactly. So... <laughs> Um, decay finds its way into the heart household as well. But you know, before we get to that, let's uh, finish up on, on Therio real quick, because I do see him as a mirror for Cole. 
what did you think of him again? Because because I said he's kind of a used car salesman. That's how I see him. That's exactly. <laughs> and how do you see him here at the end, the last time that we see him now knowing how all of this ends and how deep this rot goes in he, this community? Yeah, he definitely doesn't seem like the same person when this when you see him in the, you know. He's given. actually genuine in his beliefs. Mm-hmm. He's a he's actually one of the good guys. Right, he's, but he doesn't give off that used car salesman vibe, you know, like. No. <laughs> No, because when you backtrack from that moment where this literally kind of breaks him, he's he's a good guy. Yeah. He's one of the few actually honest men in this right. series. And isn't it a shame what this has done to him? Someone who's out there, uh-huh. you know, a man of, of real belief and this is broken. This is just what this stuff does. This uh-huh. is what this does to people. So decay, it just runs all over this show. And as I just said, it's in the heart household as well. In our last episode... We mentioned that when Hart's daughters open the bedroom curtains, the color yellow washes over the frame. And that, of course, is representative of the Yellow King that we're going to be talking to as we get closer to him. When this series was first airing, a lot of people were looking at things like the drawings we're about to talk about as proof that Hart was abusing his daughters. And then they were drawing the conclusion that one of the detectives was the killer. And looking back on it now, do you think this is the psychosphere influencing the world around it? And is there anything Hart could have done to stop it? I definitely think it is. Um, I don't know what he could have done to have stopped it. I think he probably could have been more present in his family life because you know we talked about it last week he is one of those guys who is able to justify bad behavior Mm -hmm. saying it's for the good of the family and i think that's just about as low as you can get (laughs) and i'm not saying that uh those extracurriculars were playing a part but uh they probably were yeah and, uh, you know, the influence he was having because he could have been a more steady male role model for his daughters, I think. True. He could have been a more steady husband to his wife. And I think if his presence had been more complete in that house, I think maybe the influence could have been kept out just a little bit. True. But But this, this evil psychosphere influence is kind of all-encompassing. So who's to say? I don't know. Maybe it's influencing him just a little bit because, you know, we haven't really talked about, you know, the way that it's influencing Marty too much. But uh, it's it's definitely all around. It broke a man of God. I think it would have broken Martin Hart. (laughs) So, well, there's uh, three performances in the series that we haven't hit on yet. The first is Michelle Monaghan as Maggie Hart. And Monaghan has been in a lot of movies, including Kiss Kiss Bang Bang, Mission Impossible 3, Ghost Protocol, and Fallout, Gone Baby Gone, Due Date, and Patriot's Day. She's currently working on the remake of the 1996 film The Craft with David Duchovny, uh, Fox Mulder of X-Files fame. What do you think of Monaghan as Maggie Hart? Because she has a pretty big scene in this episode and is an important character moving forward. What do you think of her? I like her. Um... I, th- I feel like she kind of grounds things, if that makes any sense. That makes makes a yeah. lot of sense. And, yeah. and I read a lot of stuff, but people didn't like her character so much because, you know, they felt like, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Uh, the, the phrase that kept coming up in my research was nagging. Yeah. That she was a nagging harpy, a very shrill woman. You know, that, that's- But I read, I read a thing, too, where, like, the women in this weren't treated right and all this kind of mm-hmm. stuff, you know. Yeah. But I think that's the way, you know, it should have been played out. But Right, right. So I want to address the nagging thing because mm-hmm. I don't find her to be nagging at all. I don't either. As we just said, this is a man who's running around on her. Mm-hmm. 
uh, is neglecting some of his parental duties. She's at home trying to keep all of this together in the midst of this awfulness going on all around them. I see no signs that she has strayed from the marriage before she does it later right. in the episode when she had um, in the series when she has proof positive that he has been doing it and she does it out of revenge and spite. I see no proof that she's doing any of this. I see a lot of proof that she is there for him completely. I see a lot of proof that she's taking care of the house. She's taking care of the kids. She's probably taking care of a lot of other things that we don't right. see that we're not aware of. Um, she is from money. It appears we see when they go uh, to her parents' house, she doesn't need this. Right. She he needs this a lot more than she, she needs, needs this. <laughs> I don't consider her to be nagging. I think that she if she is applying any pressure to him, it's because she needs some help mm-hmm. with what is going on. She needs him to be there. Exactly. And I think that's a marriage, is it not? Right. Is it? <laughs> Is it not? And I don't feel like she's asking anything of him that's out of the ballpark or realm of possibility, except, you know, I know you're busy. Exactly. You know, you need to spend a little time. Now she has her suspicions. Right. You know, she's not stupid. <laughs> but uh, I don't I don't find her to be, no, mm-hmm. nagging or shrill or a harpy or any of those other so terms. Um, now, addressing the thing with the way women are treated in this episode... I will say this. Um, I think the way that the women uh, in the lives of Hart and Cole are treated is exactly the way that they would be treated because that's who these right. men are. Right. And I don't think that's a. Well, see, that's what I read and almost feel like. I can't remember if, if they actually, you know, commented back to these people, but I think somebody was like, that's the way they were supposed to be for these characters, you know. Right. For, for Hart and Cole. Right. Like, that's literally. That's why they were written that way. It's not because they don't and care I, about women. It's just right, you know, right. It's for the show. And I don't think this is a grand treatise on gender relations. Mm-hmm. I don't think that they're holding uh, Cole and Hart up as as uh, paragons of virtue with the way that you should conduct your life. I don't right. think that at all. And like I said, the way that the women are treated, I don't think is the way that Nick Pizzolatto views right women. I think it's the way these men exactly. treat women exactly and isn't it amazing that you still like them mm-hmm. you know because i mean they're not perfect people and that's one of the things i really like about this mm-hmm. show is that nobody's perfect yeah you know it's they're not very, all sunshine and yeah, rainbows people could be very you know relatable to these characters and that, that i think that's a great you know there's so many people or so many shows and characters that people just can't relate to they're they're not real and and this came out in 2014, so it's uh you know five six years old now. Mm-hmm. We are living in the world of agenda driven storytelling, and mm-hmm. you know if you had a story group somewhere, you know uh, having to check off boxes, I don't know that this makes it out. Y- right. You know what I mean? Like uh, if, I know if what this you mean. was, and I'm, I don't want to pick on Lucasfilm, but Lucasfilm has a story group mm-hmm. that uh, checks boxes off, and they've all but said they checked you know, diversity and story boxes off. And that's nothing against diversity. I think diversity and representation is a wonderful thing. I think it's a great thing, (laughs) but you can't check boxes off. Like you have to have this, 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 and this and a story, you know, or, Mm -hmm. or we won't release it. And the Coen brothers who are wonderful have said as much, you can't tell stories that way. Right. And, um, 
like I said, true detail, I don't want to, you know, keep getting on this soapbox, but I don't think this, this gets out if you have a story group behind it, you know, um, focus grouping this, but I agree. you know, do I like the way that the, uh, that they treat the women? No, right. absolutely not. I don't treat people <laughs> this way, you know, exactly. but, but this is who these guys are right? and this is part of this world. Mm-hmm. And, you know, so no, I don't think she's nagging or shrill. Mm-hmm. I actually think she's one of the great characters in the in the show. I and I so really I, I want to say Michelle Monaghan. She's not someone that I. I wouldn't say I'm a, I'm a Michelle Monaghan fan, right. you know, but she's always pretty solid. Right. Yeah, I've seen a few movies and she's never disappointed me. So. Always, you know, I, I don't go seeking out her work, but when right. she's in something, I'm, I'm like, oh, great. You know, yeah, yeah. she's always solid, mm-hmm. you know. And uh, she seems like she's actually pretty cool from from some of the things I was looking looking up about her. So she's she, you know, uh, yeah. I hope this doesn't say anything about the way I treat women, but she seems like a righteous babe. <laughs> so no, she seems she seems like a really great she does great uh, great woman, and I think she's a fine actress. So uh, final question on this uh, juncture here: Does Hart have a problem with women? I would say so. I think he does. I I don't think he's threatened by them. I think that he, and I don't even think that he really feels a sense of ownership over all women. I think it's just certain women, you know, because, you know, he gets into that row with. Do you almost feel like he kind of has a control issue? Like, not completely, but. I think his issues manifest themselves in his relationships with these two women. Mm -hmm. But the women are not the causes of those issues. I think it's something that he feels like he can control because, you know, he has that scene in this episode where he talks about turning 40 and, you know, and life kind of passing him by and, and, you know, and and it's feeling like it's spiraling out of control a little bit. I don't think he is a misogynist. So, you know, like, you know, like that he just hates and dislikes women. I think it's just that the way that he treats these two characters here, uh, Lisa and Maggie, uh, I think and I just realized that they're two Simpsons, uh, you know, two Simpsons <laughs> characters names. Um, but the way that he treats these two women, it's it, him trying to control his life. And he's trying to control these, you know, especially uh, mm-hmm. uh, Lisa in this episode. He really is trying to control that. And um, so I think his his problem is change. I think that is that is his problem. And, you know, he yeah. keeps talking about cold. And this just hit me when I was I was putting this together in my head as I was saying this. He keeps talking about Cole. You know, there's certain things a man needs in life. Remember that spiel he had? He needs mm-hmm. a family. He gets to a certain age. He doesn't have this. He doesn't have that. He doesn't have that. He has those things. Exactly. He has those things, you know? And uh, and he is literally just kind of pissing it away. I know. And justifying all that bad behavior. Mm-hmm. So, yes, he has a problem with women, but his big problem is not rooted in women i will right. that's that's gonna that's where i'm going with that what do you think about that i, I, I buy that i get that i understand what you're saying I, I like that yeah um you know do i if i and again uh for all of you out there i, I do not agree with the way that he no. treats these women i don't want you to think i agree with the way either of them treat women so well moving on from that the two other actors we need to mention are michael potts as gilbo and tori kittles as Papania. they often get overlooked because there's so much awesomeness going on around them and and it's it's easy to to forget that they're there right uh what do you think of these actors and, and I, i'm i'm ashamed that we haven't talked about them it's taken three episodes to <laughs> to really get into them i like them i think for men who don't say way too many things and 
<laughs> you know, who aren't uh, constantly on camera. I, I, I think they are important. They make the most out of their screen time mm-hmm. and they're wonderful uh, tour guides through this mm-hmm. through this world because they're asking the questions that we we the audience need exactly. to know. But they also offer just enough commentary and humor to keep things really interesting. And I believe it's Michael Potts playing Gilbo has this smile, this really wry smile he'll make every now and then that I just I just really like. Mm-hmm. He looks like the cat that ate the canary. <laughs> and like I said, it's a shame that they get so overlooked. But I think it's a testament to how good they are that they get overlooked yeah. because they just keep it really solidly grounded right. in those scenes and they're not intrusive. Exactly. And exactly. Uh, I think they're absolutely wonderful. I, I think right they're, I think they really doing the rewatch of the show. I think they really helped to make this show what it is, mm-hmm. you know? And again, it's very, it's very easy to overlook them. Yeah. Because they're kind of, what's the word I'm looking for? They're kind of that way that the story's being told for us, you know, they're the proxy so, for us. Yes. Yeah, so I think they do a good job of, like I said they're important. I think they they do a good job in their roles. Yeah, and I think uh, Potts and Kittles are are uh, very likable. They're mm-hmm. very they're very likable fellas. Mm-hmm. You know, like I I didn't I never disliked those characters. Right. You know, I and I just really like those actors. And I think, uh, like I said, when if you watch this series, if you're watching along with us, or you plan on doing a rewatch, really pay attention to what they're doing because I was I rewatched this episode setting this show up and. I was really noticing. I was like, they are really good. And they just kind of fade into the background, you know, but they're wonderful. So, well, Russ Cole says in one of the later episodes that if given two minutes with a suspect, he could know whether they were guilty or innocent. He has Childress right in front of him, but is only there for a minute. Do you think he could have figured it out? If he had that extra minute, do you think it, it would have come out? Possibly. I don't know. What do you think? I'm going to say yes. Cole's just <laughs> that's, that good. That's where I'm leaning. Cole's just yeah, that good. Yes. <laughs> yeah, but there's a great, uh, there's some great screenshots from this moment when he's walking past the sign at the school and it says uh, the way that the uh, little gate post uh, breaks up the letter and it says the king is near, I believe is what it says. So it's planted right there mm-hmm. in the episode and that sun's behind him. He can't see him, so he can't see those scars. Nope. And uh, did you notice that Childress was cutting in a circle? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. He's yep. a creep. <laughs> He's a creep, you and we're gonna say. we're gonna get to him. <laughs> we're gonna get to him a little more. One of the things I really like that they do from a storytelling uh, standpoint here is they don't give you any inkling that that's the guy. You see him three episodes in, and you get no idea yeah. that that's the guy. They don't cut back to him. You know, you know, have him looking at him driving. No, yeah, no. You have if there's no like intense music building up to when we yeah. see him or something. <laughs> yeah, he's just a guy on a lawnmower. Uh-huh. A creep on a lawnmower cutting grass at a school. You know who else did that? Forrest Gump. Forrest Gump. He's a creep who, yes, cut, who cut grass <laughs> on a lawnmower at school. And Faith and I have said it many times on this show. Forrest Gump. What is it, Faith? A horror it's film. It's a horror film. <laughs> One of the most terrifying films I've ever seen. <laughs> so speaking of terrifying, at the end of this episode, we see Reggie Ledoux, and he's wearing a mask. And that is, of course, one of the running themes of the show we're going to talk about him and Childress more as the series continues. But what did you think of Reggie Ledoux there at the end? I have a I have a thought on on him. He's a, he's strange, <laughs> you know, just a little. 
he looks like a monster. Yeah. He looks like the bull or something in the uh, the Minotaur yeah. in the maze, you know. Yes. And he's wearing that mask, you know, and there's something otherworldly about him that I just, you know, he's creepy. Yeah. He's creepy crawly. Yeah. He's big creepy crawly in this show. And we're going to talk more about him as the uh, series continues. Faith, do you have anything else you would like to add about this episode or just True Detective in general? I think that's it about this episode. But I'm still so glad we're talking about the show in general, you know, this this season. Right. right. And we mentioned last week that we have some True Detective stuff going on <laughs> around us uh, that uh, we had a policeman and a teacher that were picked up on 60 counts of child pornography. This is news worldwide now. This has made the papers in Britain. Now, we're not going to say who this is on the show. Uh, you can look it up. If, if you look this up, you'll you'll find it. Um, and this happened in right in Faith's neighborhood. And one of the things that we talked about last week is that this is all around us. It has roots Everywhere, as we said, you know, you got a policeman and a teacher. That's two people that you should be able to trust. Mm -hmm. And as we saw with Therio here, he kind I don't want to say he loses his faith, but it breaks him when he realizes just how deep and widespread this is. Um, there's going to be a lot more on the thing coming out here in our area that's going to be coming out. But uh, it, it kind of appears that this this runs deep, yeah. that <laughs> that this this has some roots in uh, this community where we are and that it stretches. And, uh, again, I just want to say, we don't like talking about this no. stuff. This is our least favorite thing in the world to talk about. But, um, as we said last week, uh, be mindful. If you see something, say something, be careful of who you're saying it to make exactly. sure you're saying it to the right authorities. If you need to go above them, do that, do that. Mm -hmm. There are, there are several national hotlines you can call, Look them up. I, I should have I should have them here. We will have them next week uh, because the people who turned these people in could not go to local police. They had to call a national hotline. So if that's something, if you know something going on and you need to circumvent local police and go higher, go to city or, or go to state police or FBI, do that. Because the only way that these people here get caught is someone, a very good citizen, calling the national hotline. Mm -hmm. And we are very grateful for them. And we hope that all of you out there are very safe. And like I said, just be mindful. We're not trying to preach, but this literally landed. And uh, on a message board, I was reading people were saying, this is true detective. This is true detective stuff. And so, you know, irony of ironies, it's we like, started the, the week I know, before. What is the, you know, coincidence, yeah. you know? <laughs> so, uh, like I said, be safe. And if you have kids, love them up, hug them, keep them, keep them safe because this is out there. Mm -hmm. And, uh, well, that's it. I don't, I don't want to talk about that anymore, <laughs> but, uh, we will be back next week with episode four of true detective until then I am Dan and I am Faith and we want you to Keep your monster. Maddie Mac. Oh, there it is, Maddie Mac. It's Mac uh, excuse Attack me, I'm so sorry. There you go. Let's try it again. <laughs> I'm Dan, and I am Faith, and we want you to keep, keep your, your Maddie, Maddie Mac, Mac on, on a leash. leash. We'll see you on the other side. Yeah.